0: So, Father God, we confess we are in and of ourselves inadequate. And we need you to step into the emptiness of our lives. So, Father God, would you do that now through the preaching and proclamation of your word? Our hearts are ready to receive whatever it is you have for us. So, fill us, Lord God, with the seed of your word. May it fall on good ground. May it produce a harvest of fruit in our lives. I'm available for you to use me, Lord God. Give me great clarity. I rest, Lord God, under your hand of anointing. Speak, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, please meet me in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we're continuing on in our series on the book of Galatians uh, to let you know where the teaching is going to be going. Uh, Lord willing, next week we'll be in Galatians 5, the week after that Galatians 6, and uh, then we are going to spend uh, all the way through June in a series called Unleashed. Uh, I want to talk about what the gospel looks like unleashed in our relationships with other people. The gospel is not just something that is to impact your heart. In fact, the way we know that we've really embraced the gospel, the way that we know that we're really swimming in the deep waters of the gospel, is it should have a radical impact on how I deal with people, how I relate to people. So it is, it is spiritual malpractice to say that I've been filled with the Spirit, but I'm That same old unforgiving, grudge-holding person. That's just just not what the gospel looks like. So we're going to talk about what it looks like unleashed on people who've wronged us. Uh, We're going to talk about what it looks like unleashed in friendships, unleashed in marriage, unleashed in parenting, and a whole lot of other ways. I want to also just uh, come before you right before we get into God's Word and to let you know uh, that uh, we're kind of doing a, a, um, a makeover in our resource center. Uh, we've still got, uh, uh, we've been selling DVDs and CDs. That's just so wrong. God bless you for um, for buying them, but we put it into that because you can get all this stuff for free. Uh, and we've got a few CDs and DVDs left um, right next to the eight track cassette tapes. And. Um, so if you want to pick those up, they're totally for free. But we've also restocked the resource center uh, with um, some of my favorite books that I've ever read. Um, my kids asked me the the day, dad, how many books have you read? And you I don't know, a couple thousand. It's not because I'm a voracious reader. It's just, that's just kind of how I'm wired. Uh, I just love books, and I've restocked the bookstore with some of my favorite books uh, and some of my favorite authors that'll deepen your affections for Christ. So please, if you haven't done so yet, go to the Resource Center and get equipped uh, for, some, for some great resources to help you be effective followers of Jesus Christ. Pick me up in verse 1, Galatians chapter 4. guy who wrote this, his name is Paul. Paul says this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless, worthless, worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, verse 12, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. Well, the son of the free woman was born, according, was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, You who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers... We are not children of the slave, but of the free. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. My father is um, an extremely intelligent um, uh, man. Uh, In fact, uh, growing up in uh, Newark, New Jersey, Uh, He showed such an uh, intellectual and academic aptitude that back then, I don't know if they do that much now, they actually um, uh, skipped him a grade. So I think he jumped from the fifth grade to the seventh grade. Uh, I don't think they do that that much now, um, you know, because that's just violating all kind of socialization patterns and so on and so forth. But that's what they did back in the uh, early 1960s. Um, and a typical report card for my dad, even though he's extremely intelligent, at the same time he was an extremely rambunctious little child. Is he would come home with straight A's in academics, and you flip the report card over, and there'd be all U's in conduct. U's meaning unsatisfactory. And uh, my dad recalls coming home uh, one day, I think he's in seventh grade, something like that. And he gives a report card to his mom and typical straight A's in academics, uh, in conduct, flipped it over, all used, unsatisfactory. And his teacher, Mrs. Codner, actually taking some time to write a note. And the note simply said, Crawford is well on his way to becoming the class clown. Well, dad saw that and didn't. You know, he was just kind of braced himself for what's going to follow. And he sits down to eat dinner. And his, his dad, my grandfather's home. And my dad figures he'd hurry up and eat dinner, get, get, uh, get excused from the table and go on about the evening's affairs. But just as he's about to leave, uh, his mother says, uh, Crawford, hold on. Uh, I need to show your dad something. Shows uh, his dad the report card. And um, there's my grandfather. I can see him now studying this report card, flips it over, sees all you studying it, studying it. And for a moment of just eerie silence. And he's exasperated He exhales And he says to my dad Son, you're getting too old for this You should be past this by now And he said some other things And did a few other things To cement the kind of behavior he was hoping (laughs) (laughs) That his son would get into But my dad says I never forgot that He says, I I, I don't know why It just kind of stuck with me When my dad said "You're, You're getting too old for this You should be past this. It is as if my grandfather said to my dad, this was cute in first grade. This is cute in second grade, maybe third grade, but seventh grade, not so cute. You, you You should be past this. And that was a defining moment, my dad says, in his life. It was as if my grandfather was calling him up into maturity. Sociologists tell us, and you've heard me say this before, that we are in an age called extended adolescence. You've heard me give you this definition of adolescence before. Adolescence is simply defined as wanting the privileges of adulthood without the responsibilities. That's why shacking up appeals to so many extended adolescent males, boys trapped in a man's body. Wait a minute, I can get the benefits of a relationship without having the responsibilities of one. That is adolescent behavior. And young lady, I'm telling you, don't let them test drive you. You're better than that. I know, I know you can change them. I know, I know, I know, I know. But because of that, adolescence has extended, sociologists tell us, to age 35. It is plaguing our society. Boys trapped in a man's body who aren't growing up. Now, as we come to Galatians chapter 4, Paul is not talking in sociological terms, but he is, he's got a, a problem he's dealing with, and that is extended adolescence, not sociologically speaking, but spiritually speaking. Here is Paul. He's exasperated. Remember, we, we actually read it just a few seconds ago. He says, I am perplexed by you. It is as if he's rubbing his forehead, looking at the spiritual record, report card of the nation of, of these believers. And he's saying, you should be past this by now. Here he is in the opening seven verses. He likens uh, the, the nation of Israel. He, he likens them to, to time. And he's saying, look, when you were kids... You are enslaved to the elementary principles of this world, namely the law. The law is a standard of do's and don'ts. It was a bunch of directives. Eat this, don't eat that. Do this, don't do that. In fact, that's how you speak to kids. You speak to kids in directives. God bless you, and i see, it. I know you're a new age parent now. You, you want to have a conversation with a two-year-old about whether or not they should stick their hand in the socket. Uh, that's ridiculous. Just, let me just correct you on that. Little Johnny wants to run across El Camino Real, and you want to have a conversation with him about that. That's abusive. Little Johnny needs, well, I can't say that. (laughs) Email me at keith.alcf.net. But with kids, this is how you speak to kids. You speak to kids in directives. Don't do that. You will eat your food. You will make up your bed. You will do this. You won't do that. You will. You won't. You will. You won't. You will. You won't. That's how you speak to kids. You speak to them in directives and you speak to them kind of in law kind of language. But here's what Paul is saying. I'm perplexed about you. Because you're 30 something years old. Still acting like a spiritual two year old. Basing your sense of identity off of a list of directives called the law. That's not maturity, that's immaturity. If who you are is based off the fact that I don't see certain kinds of movies and um, y- you know I don't go certain places and I haven't done certain things in such a long time and my identity is kind of being formed off of my moral choices and the fact that I've memorized X amount of verses and, and my giving report and hear me, there is a place for those things, but we never rest our identity on those things. We only rest our identity in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, what is this I'm hearing about you? He literally says you observe days and seasons and years. What is he getting to? He's, he's getting now back to the Mosaic law. You're basing your identity on whether or not you keep the Passover. You're basing your identity on the fact that you Sabbath. He's not saying those things are wrong, but we don't lean on those things for our own sense of identity. That leads to self-righteousness, and it is profoundly immature. Immature. The law is like a set of training wheels. Here you are, 35 years old, boasting in your training wheels. Can't you? Pedaling down the street, training wheels. He says, I'm perplexed about you. Now, I I know some of you are sitting here and, um, and you're going, well, that's wonderful, but I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ, so I guess that only applies to them. No, not so fast. The phrase he uses is actually telling. He talks about being enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What he's getting at here is is, is anything we look to for identity outside of Jesus Christ. And all of us, no matter where you are on the spiritual spectrum, if you've been raised in the church and you've been saved since you were a little kid or you're here today and you would say, I don't know anything about Jesus Christ. We all struggle with idolatry, looking to other things to find our identity in outside of Jesus Christ. So you may not know Christ Jesus, but you're here today and maybe you're basing your identity on your GPA, Maybe you're, you're basing your identity on your success or the amount of money in your bank account or, or the fact that you're in a relationship, whatever it may be. These are elementary principles and it's profoundly immature. Corey and I have a person that we, we know we were just talking about this week. We, uh, when, when we were at this one church, um. This individual was in the entertainment industry, um, and he wasn't an A-list actor, a B-list actor, not even a C-list actor. I mean, he had gotten like one line and one little two-bit sitcom that didn't last half a season. But he was so impressed with himself, he went out and got a custom-made uh, a license plate that said, Seen on TV. <laughs> and you shake your head at the immaturity. Now, now, now watch this. We're so judgmental. At least he's honest. See, See, we all do that. We all do that. We all struggle with resting our identity and where we went to school, the letters behind our name, where we live, what we own or don't own. And Paul is saying, I'm perplexed by you. that's, That's profoundly immature. He's saying in so many words, you're getting too old for this. Paul is calling us up into spiritual maturity. What does spiritual maturity look like? I want to give you three things. I want us to take this test today, and as we walk through Galatians chapter 4, this is going to be profoundly helpful for diagnosing how we're doing if we're on a trajectory to, to maturity or if we're on a downward trajectory towards spiritual immaturity. Paul gives us three diagnostics in which we can measure whether or not we are on the pathway to maturity. The first is what he calls a renewed heart, a renewed heart. Verses 1 through 7, again, he's talking about time and he's speaking of it in very anthropomorphic terms. He's applying human characteristics to time. He says, but verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, vibrate please, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He pictures time as a pregnant woman. He says, when the fullness of time had come, he's writing in Greek, the Greek word for fullness, for fullness is pleroma. It means to be filled to overflowing, filled to overflowing. It was actually used of, of pregnant women and not just any old pregnant woman but a pregnant woman in her third trimester of pregnancy i'm talking show enough pregnant i'm talking can't bend down and tie your shoes pregnant because you're so overflowing with baby pregnant i'm talking can't get comfortable at night pregnant he pictures time as being in its third trimester and the apex of time paul says is when she gave birth to jesus christ but in the fullness play roma the fullness of time God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law. And when Jesus came, what did he come to do? He came to redeem us. What did he come to redeem us from? In context, from being enslaved to the law. He came to redeem us from the vicious curse of legalism. The idea of this word redeem, it means to to set free. It means to emancipate. I love this. My wife and I, we just, um, we, we just spoke on this marriage cruise, Love Like You Mean It. They do it every single year, 1,500 couples just coming together on a cruise, getting inspired uh, to have better marriages. I highly encourage you doing this. It's an incredible opportunity. So my wife and I went, and we spoke at it. And then afterwards, we're at the airport headed back, and we run into one of the couples who spoke at it. And we're talking to them. And um, it's, this, um, it's this white couple. And uh, this, this guy speaking, this, this elderly white guy speaking, this saint of a man, incredibly godly. I don't know how we got in the conversation. We were talking about race. He's got tears in his eyes. And he's talking about his great-great-grandfather who was, who, was so, um, um, who was so taken back and aghast at slavery that one day, he says, my great-great-grandfather went to the auction block and bought a slave. And when he bought him, He told the slave, I don't want anything from you. Here's your papers. I bought you to set you free. The slave could not believe it. He takes off running. And then a few moments later, he turns and barrels back to this man who had just bought and purchased his freedom and says, I don't know what to do. I have nowhere to go. I don't know how I'm going to make it. So if you don't mind... I'd love to work for you. My friend says his great-great-grandfather thought about it for a moment. And he says, I'll do it on one condition. That you serve me out of freedom. That at any given moment, you can leave. You're not in bondage to me. This is voluntary servitude. This is the idea of redemption. Redemption. We were enslaved to sin, but on a hill called Calvary, Christ redeemed us. He set us free. Watch it. And he didn't set us free for us to now do life on our own terms, but to turn around and to voluntarily serve him. This is what redemption is. In fact, anytime Paul writes, one of the things he always addresses himself as is Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. You have been set free not to serve rules. You have been set free to serve within the context of a relationship of a God who loves you and cares for you deeply. The tragedy of legalism is legalism teaches us it is quite possible to love rules that it is Jesus. Jesus. We never fall more in love with reading through the Bible in one year than the man who authored the Bible. So I should hope that we're tracking through and we're continuing to read through the Bible in a year. But listen to me. I think for some of us, reading through the Bible in a year means more to us than what it actually means to God. It is quite possible to read through the Bible and never have intimacy with God. It is quite possible to pray and to do so never praying out of a context of intimacy with him. You've been created to be in relationship with a God who loves you so deeply and so profoundly that he gave his only son for you. So Christ came to redeem us. Watch this now. And he now goes on to say, Here's how you know you're redeemed. And he has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, crying, crying. Greek word kradzo. It means a loud shrill, a yell, Abba, Father. Here's how you know you're saved. There's one song on repeat in the soundtrack of your heart. Abba, Father, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. That's how you know you're saved. What does that mean? Abba is Aramaic baby talk for daddy. It is a picture of a two-year-old girl crawling into her daddy's lap, maybe grabbing him by the face and saying, Abba, 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 Abba. You only said Abba to those you are in intimate relationship with. How do I know that I'm saved? The spirit has been sent into my heart and my heart's cry is daddy, 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 daddy. That's how I know I'm saved. Notice you don't know you're saved because you've conformed to a rule. I could take it to Luke 15, this is the famous story. We call it the prodigal son. It's mislabeled. It should be called a dad and two lost sons. He's got a young, irreligious son who goes to the far country, wastes his money on prostitutes, but there's another son, an elder brother, who's at home. Both of them are far away from the father. One just happens to live in close geographic proximity, but his heart is far away from his dad. If you read that story, what you figure out is he's very responsible he hasn't left home. He shows up every day for work. But there's no heart connection with his dad. That's exactly what Paul is ge- what Jesus is getting to in this story when he's talking about religion. The danger of religion is we can come to church, be in close proximity to the Father, but our hearts are far away from him. That's why Jesus would call the Pharisees whitewashed graveyards full of dead men's bones. You're a finely manicured sepulcher. But the truth of the matter is you're dead. There's no heart for God. That's why you may be here today. Those who have a heart for God, they sin. And yet when they sin, there is deep what Paul calls godly grief, godly conviction, because I've hurt the heart of daddy. If you can sin and feel nothing, be very concerned about the legitimacy of your salvation. So here's how God does it. I love this. The problem with the law is the law only focuses on behaviors. The law is like a long New Year's resolutions list. You may have moments where you're doing well, but there will never be long-term transformation. All the law can do at best is behavior modification. God says, I am concerned about your behavior, but the way I'm going to get to your actions is I'm going to first get to your heart. I'm going to change you from the inside out. This is exactly what Ezekiel 36 gets to. Look at it with me on the screen. Ezekiel 36, verse 26, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God says, here's how I'm going to change you. I am not going to focus on the change first. Let me give you a new heart because God understands whatever has your heart gets your actions. So if we just take a test. I could look at your checkbook and tell you exactly where your heart is. Your heart is seen in whatever money flows freely to. It's your heart. Where's your heart? I'll never forget when I was single. I talk a lot of sm- I talk a lot of smack. I ain't going out like no sucker. My boys they henpecked. They them fell in love with these girls, and you don't see them anymore. That's not me. When I get in a relationship, I ain't gonna abandon my boys, hang out all the time. I'm gonna run this. I'm gonna be in control. I'm I'm gonna be. I ain't gonna tell the girl I love her. That's for soft people. I got this. You know, I love that Mike Tyson line. You've heard it. Everybody got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> That's the most profound thing Mike Tyson ever said. Everybody got a plan till they get punched in the mouth. Well, when Sister Lorette showed up, I broke all the rules from day one. All of them. All of them. You know back in the day how it was. You got a girl's number back in the day. You were supposed to wait 24, 48, 72 hours before you called her because you don't want to come across looking too excited. I called her the day of. My boys were like, have you seen Brian? We ain't seen him in a while. All of a sudden, I've abandoned them. I'm hanging out with her all the time. She done turned this introvert into an extrovert. I'm talking on the phone to the wee hours in the morning. About, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. <laughs> all that, just keep that between us, okay? Uh, edit that. Don't put that on radio. But this is what I want you to understand. Now, now we all know what's going on here. My actions changed. Why did my actions change? Well, she got my heart. She got my heart. The problem with rules is rules will never get your heart. They'll never get your heart. Some of us as parents, we even know the the pain of maybe having kids who outwardly conform to rules. But there was never a heart connection between mama and child, daddy and child. Because rules ruled. Get this in your mind. God is more concerned about your heart than he is your behavior. It blows my mind that David. An adulterer. Is known. As a man. After God's own heart. How does that happen? Because David said stuff like Psalm 51. As he is pouring out his heart in confession over his sin. What does he say? Create in me not new actions. But create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. If God knows your heart, God's more concerned about your heart than he is your actions. How do I know I am on a trajectory of spiritual maturity? He's got my heart. Even when I blow it, there's tears because he's got my heart. I can't just sin and go into sin and feel nothing. Why? Because he has my heart. In fact, can we just tell the truth? Have you ever planned on doing your dirt and you couldn't even enjoy your dirt? And the reason why you couldn't enjoy your dirt is because he had your heart. Secondly, I love this. How do I know I'm, I'm maturing? He's got my heart. Secondly, I know I'm maturing because I'm real. I'm studying this thing this week, and I'm I'm pouring pouring my my energy and effort over Galatians 4. And then I come across verse 12. And I read verses 12 through verse 20, and I'm going, this doesn't seem to fit. Because beginning in verses 12 through 20, Paul Paul says stuff like, Brothers, I entreat you, verse 12, become as I am. Verse 13, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a tragedy. what in the world, Paul, what, what are you getting at here? I love this. Don't miss it. Acts chapter 14, you've got to read it sometime. Paul goes into Lystra. He preaches the gospel there. The people don't like it. They are so repulsed by this gospel message, they actually stone Paul. If you know anything about stoning, stoning involved always hurling a person off of an elevated platform at least 30 feet high in the air. And and the fall, most times, was enough to kill you. At the least, it would would cause you, in modern terminology, to be concussed. So Paul gets pushed off of this elevated place. He's dazed. He's concussed. And then the townspeople begin literally pelting him with miniature-sized boulders. Most scholars tell us that that here's Paul, he's miraculously survived. Most scholars tell us that Paul now deals for the rest of his life with the lingering effects of that stoning. And part of the lingering effects effects are is that they say Paul has bad eyes. We understand this. Again, if you look back at our text, Paul alludes to this when he says stuff like in verse 15, For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Or if you look at chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Paul had an eye problem. He had actually prayed that God would do something about it. Most scholars tell us this is exactly what Paul is getting to in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. When he says, Three times I prayed, Lord, take this thorn of the flesh from you. And each time he said, My grace is sufficient for you. Paul was not an impressive looking man. Now here's what really challenges paul paul came along in a culture in which the greeks loved their speakers they, they place a high priority on oration in fact speakers to the greeks are kind of like actors and entertainers to us today they were the local celebrities they love their speakers to have it all together to look good to be polished to be all that now watch what paul does paul says when i came to you i came to you in weakness i didn't have it all together You saw my bad eyes. They were, he says, a fiery trial to you. I didn't try to cover it up. I didn't try to make it look good. I didn't try to sweep it under the rug. I came to you in profound authenticity. Why? Here's how you know you are maturing in Christ. Paul is so secure in his relationship with God. It is as if Paul said, if God knows me fully, if he knows everything I've ever done, good, bad, and ugly, and if he still knows me fully and still embraces me fully, then why in the world am I trying to please you who will never know me fully and who cannot possibly embrace me fully? See, what he wants us to understand is security breeds authenticity. When you are secure in Christ... You are free enough to fire your inner lawyer. When you are secure in Christ, you are released from the tyranny of people pleasing. I'm authentic. I'm authentic. I don't need to hide. Some of you here today, you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, but maybe you've heard of the biblical story of Adam and Eve. Sin enters into the world. and What's the first thing they do? They hide. Vulnerability is gone. Transparency is gone. Authenticity is gone. They look for fig leaves. Parenthesis. We got to be careful here because authenticity doesn't always mean transparency. You can be authentic but not know everything about me. There are certain things you'll never know about me that, <clears throat> that only my wife and I will know about each other. That doesn't mean I'm not authentic. But nonetheless, we've been called to be authentic. If there's one thing kids can teach us, boy, kids are authentic, aren't they? Kids are gonna keep it real. I remember my godbrother, uh, he's about five or six years of age. I'll never forget my godbrother um walking into Sunday school one day and announcing to the whole class, Sunday school teacher, everybody, I don't feel like hearing nothing about no Jesus today. Let's just say his dad didn't have a conversation with him. <laughs> you know, we laugh, but we felt like that before. We felt like that. If there's one thing, Abundant Life, I want this to be. I really believe the church of Jesus Christ needs to be leading the world and modeling what authenticity looks like. If you can't be authentic in the house of God, why are we here? Just this week, one of my pastor friends called me. He said, hey, man, I need you to walk with me. I feel like I'm getting dangerously close to crossing a line with another woman. I love the authenticity there. Part of the problem with we pastors is We can be so obsessed with our brand and pleasing people and having you buy into this notion that that who I am on stage is exactly who I am all the time. And 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 I start listening to you and all the accolades you give me. And then I get fearful of whether or not I can be authentic and real and whether or not you accept me. And and because of that fear, I now get isolated and nobody really knows me. And now I'm lonely. It's a tragedy. I hate to say this. Most pastors I know don't really have friends in the real sense of the word. And they're easy picking for the enemy. I've made up my mind if I can't be real and authentic, why be a pastor? I can make a lot more money working somewhere else. Who knows you? Who? Who knows you? Who knows the financial mess you're in right now? Who knows about the Instagram chats and Facebook inboxing stuff you've been doing? with a person who's not your spouse? Who knows you? Who knows about that addiction? Who knows about that drinking problem? Who knows you? One of the things God says, it's not good for a man to be alone. One of the things Proverbs says, the fool isolates himself. All of us need this. We, we need this. Someone to embrace us, but someone to love us enough to give us a sanctified kick in the pants. Who knows you? Paul says, you saw my stuff. I didn't hide. I'm secure in Christ. So I ain't trying to please you. I'm free. And if you reject me, that's okay because God accepts me. I'm secure. Let's go home on this one. What does it mean to be on a trajectory of spiritual maturity? It means that I've got a renewed heart. God is alive and at work in my heart. It's what the Puritans call my affections are being stirred towards him. Not only that, but I'm real. I'm authentic. I'm swimming in the deep waters of the gospel. And I know that God, this astounds me, knows everything about me. And yet he still says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Wow. I ain't got time to be fake with you. But thirdly, finally, there's a daily reliance on the gospel. What does that mean? Paul ends with, a, with, with an illustration. He, he, he's trying to get this point home that you don't want to go the way of the law. You, you want to go the way of the gospel. And, and to solidify his point, he talks about two women. He says, um, he says, here's Abraham, here's Sarah, they're, they're married to one another. God shows up to them one day and he says, listen, I know you've struggled with infertility all your life, but, but I promise you I'm going to make of you a great nation and you're going to have a child. And, and this is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. They're in their early to mid-80s when God makes this promise. Fourteen years go by after this, nothing's happened. Sarah says, This ain't working. Maybe we misunderstood God. Why don't you take my maid, Hagar, Abraham, have relations with her, and then you guys have a baby? Abraham's like, oh, All right, sure. <laughs> so they have a baby, son named Ishmael. Paul's whole point is Ishmael is birthed out of human ability. And because he's birthed out of human ability, that is illustrative of the law. Do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. But the problem, he says, is God says that ain't the child of promise. So they get cast out. His point is, when you go the path of human ability, that cannot get you to God. Like I said last week, it's as ridiculous as asking a four-year-old to dunk on a 10-foot basketball. They don't have the ability to jump that high. Then there's Isaac. Paul calls Sarah the barren woman. I want to be sensitive to this. Because some of you are wrestling with that right now. Infertility. Here's Sarah. His point is this. She cannot of her own ability. Manufacture the promises of God. She's barren. If God doesn't step into the barren places of her life. And pull this thing off. It will not get done. So God steps in. In a miracle, she gets pregnant with Isaac. Isaac is the child of promise. If I had more time, I'd develop this. Barren women back then were social pariahs. Your sense of self worth and self esteem as a woman was tied into your ability to have kids. Here's here's Sarah, she's marginalized. She's in her 90s. She doesn't have a kid. She's marginalized. And I love this. What this is teaching us is that the gospel is not just for insiders. It's for outsiders too. It's not just for those who have it together. It's for those who have been ridiculed and, and, and talked about and, and pushed to the fringes. Don't you see? We're all Sarah. Sarah. We may not have barren wombs, but we have barren hearts. Hearts that are totally cold to God. I hope you felt this earlier in the message. You can't manufacture a heart for God. You you can manufacture tithing, but not a generous heart. God has to do that. So God says, stop giving me Ishmael. I want to birth Isaac in you. And I want to step into the barren places of your life. Some of you are addicted to sins in your life and you've tried everything. You've tried to go about victory in your life through the pathway of Ishmael and Hagar. God says, would you try me? Would you try me? Would you not just give me your behavior, but would you give me your heart? And if I can get your heart, if I can get your heart, I'll get the rest. Be patient. I'm, I'm giving you an Isaac, but you don't get an Isaac before I first get your heart. In the early days of direct TV, I was so excited. I went to the local electronics store and I got the direct TV tuner, took this bad boy home to my house, ripped the box open, opened up the manual, studied this thing meticulously, followed all the instructions, connected to the TV precisely the way it said, turned on the power and nothing. A little frustrated. We'll try it again took everything apart, followed the instructions meticulously, laboring, laboring, laboring for well over an hour, reconnect this thing, turned on the TV, and nothing. My wife isn't helping because she's yelling from downstairs, is it working yet? And I'm in the flesh because I need to show her I'm a man and I can put this thing together on my own. Stop asking me, is it working yet? I try it again, nothing. By this time, I'm foo, not through, foo. So I call DirecTV, and the woman on the line, I, I tell her my, my problems, and I'm clearly frustrated. I bought your product, and I'm doing it every way that I'm trying to do it. I'm following the instructions, and, and she kind of chuckles at me. She says, well, do you have the dish? I say, uh, dish? Dish? I said, I don't have one of those. Where where do I get one? She says, you you, you don't get that. I says, she says, we'll send someone out who will bring the dish. And they will position it in such a way to where it'll talk to a satellite way up into the heavens. And those satellites will communicate and it will give you the signal. But you can't get the signal on your own. We've got to do that for you. Some of y'all are frustrated because you're trying to manufacture a godly life on your own. You're trying to be like Christ on your own. God says, will you give me your heart and I'll connect your heart to my heart way up into the heavens. And those two things will start to communicate to one another. And you'll start saying, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. And you'll live the life you've always wanted. But it begins with you saying, God, I give you my heart give you my heart more than your money. God wants your heart more than your ministry. God wants your heart more than your marriage. God wants your heart. Let's pray. Father, we bless you in this place today. Jesus, you did not die for our activities. You died for our hearts. So, Father, we we give you our hearts today. May you, Lord God, put on the soundtrack of our hearts one song that plays on repeat. Abba, Father. Abba, Father. God, even when, not if, even when we sin and fail and mess up. May there be godly grief because our hearts have been pricked and our hearts have been pricked because they belong to you. So help us with that, Lord Jesus. As we come to the table now, Lord God, we come with hearts fully submitted, totally committed to you for a father who had profound love, for a father who has a deep abiding love for us, We celebrate you right now in Jesus' name, amen.